okay, if I could have 10 of these books, 20 of these books, and that kind of income was consistent, then like you're really, you're building an asset. You're building something that's going to keep paying you for the rest of your life. And, you know, maybe even uh, if I'm ever fortunate enough to have children, would continue paying them for the rest of their life. It's like, it's like building a house where you're not just getting paid to build the house, but you actually have a house at the end and you can rent it out and, and keep earning from it. Hey, what's up, you guys? My name is Mikko Kraszowski, and welcome to episode 23 of That Remote Show, where we hear from location-independent entrepreneurs and professionals so you can learn to quit the cubicle and live life on your terms. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by Nathan Rose, a digital nomad entrepreneur and author who quit his comfortable, well-paying job as an investment banker to travel the world. In this episode, you'll learn all about how Nathan took the skills he learned at his job and began using them to earn thousands of dollars per month online within just a few weeks. You'll also hear about how his experience working with clients led him to starting his current venture as an author and Amazon publisher. And during this interview, uh, we do mention a lot of resources that can help you start an Amazon publishing business if that's something you decide you want to learn more about after listening to this podcast, uh, along with Nathan's own books. And you can find all those links at the show notes for this episode at thatremotelife.com forward slash episode 23. That's episode all spilled out with 23, the number. Uh, And one final thing before we jump into this episode, we do have a new five-star review in iTunes that I want to share. And this one is from Scream Queen 4112, who says, as a remote worker, this podcast offers such a great view into new perspectives of working on the road. Miko seems to make every guest comfortable. I feel like I've just pulled up a chair to have a conversation with him and his guest of the week. If you're not fully remote and looking for a glimpse into the remote world or you're already remote and need someone to relate to, this is the podcast for you. Uh, and thank you so much for that review, Scream Queen. I'm very happy to hear that you're finding it useful. And uh, if you're listening to this podcast right now and enjoying it, consider leaving a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Not only does it help this podcast climb their rankings and reach new listeners, but who knows, I, I may also give you a shout out on the next episode as well. So, all right, you guys, with that, I won't delay this any further. Let's dive into this interview with Nathan Rose. All right. Well, Nathan, welcome to the show, man. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Miko. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely, man. I'm super pumped to have you on because you are an expert in something that as somebody who wanted to be an author for the longest time, uh, I'm really excited to talk to you about and that's you do Amazon publishing, uh, self-publishing on Amazon. So yeah, I'm super excited to talk about that. Um, but before we jump into that, I always love to ask uh, other nomads who are on the show, where in the world are you right now? So I'm in Tbilisi, Georgia. Now, for those listeners who are in America, that's uh, Georgia, the country, not Georgia, the state. So oftentimes people will ask me, oh, you know, what are you doing living in Atlanta? And uh, it's not the case. Georgia is an Eastern European country, which uh, maybe most people might not know exactly where it is, but it's close to Armenia and Turkey and Azerbaijan, for those who want to get their atlas out, find out where I am. And what, why did you go to Georgia? Like what brought you there? Well, what brought me there initially was to um, to visit a friend. So I had a friend who was visiting Georgia. He was loving the place, and it was 2016 when I was 
when I was being more nomadic than I am now, um, like I was being in a different country every month or so in 2016, and, and Georgia was just one of those, but when I looked to establish a bit of a home base, um, it really ticked a lot of boxes in terms of the places that I'd been. Um, great cost of living, great food, very interesting time in its history to be here. So yeah, I've picked, uh, picked this to be my home for the last two or three years. Yeah, we've had somebody else on the show um, several episodes back. His name is Nate Haik, uh, and he loves Georgia. He has written a ton about Georgia, and he's always there. So um, it's definitely something that's on my radar, and I'm trying to go to um, at some point. But let's go back to a time before you could just jump around from country to country every month or now live anywhere. Uh, What were you doing before you got into this whole digital nomad world? I was an investment banker. So if you read the four hour work week, um, I think Tim Ferriss talks about the the investment banker as being like the worst of the worst job <laughs> to, 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 to to be in. Like I'm not I'm not sure if that's really quite right, but you know, there's there's definitely worse jobs. But it was um, you know, it was definitely pretty stressful, pretty difficult because when you're in that hierarchy you, you obviously start at the bottom so you don't have a lot of autonomy over the kind of work that you're doing, um, or you know, you're always you're always getting given the, the sort of the most mundane, repetitive tasks, while the you know the senior guys who are supposed to know better, um, you know, deal with the interesting stuff. So, so that was that was me for three years. What made you get into that in the first place? Uh, well, I suppose the prestige, the money. Like, if I'm being being brutally honest here, yeah, the money was attractive. And uh, yeah, it's very, very, very different when you are actually living it, right? Like you can imagine, oh, wow, you're going to make all this money. But then the day-to-day experience of what it takes to, to earn that money is, um, I think, probably more important, right? Like you get, you get your uh, salary paid in once a month or a bonus once or twice a year. Um, so that's great when that happens. But there's a lot to be said of just what every day-to-day moment is like and if that's not much fun then the end of the day those little moments every month or every t- couple of weeks are not making up for the the day-to-day experience so. yeah the, the the pain of the days in between the uh you know the paydays i'm guessing was uh pretty harsh um how long did you do that for and like what made you like want to leave like do you remember that moment when you left or when you decided uh, yeah. you were going to leave I remember, I remember lots of things. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, what what made me leave? It was the moment I think when I when I realised that the guys ahead of me were also not that happy with their lot in life. So, mm. so you could kind of imagine, all right, what if I stayed here for another five years? Could would that be worth the, you know, the short term pain to get the long term gain? Um, because, you know, often we are doing this kind of thing in life, right? We're making a sacrifice of the way we spend our time now so that we can have a, a nice payoff at the end. But I think the the moment was when I saw that even the guys who were five or ten years ahead of me were were not in a place where I necessarily wanted to be. Uh, so it made the call pretty easy, actually. Like some people talk about how they agonized over the decision or, you know, it was one of the hardest calls I've ever had to make. But, you know, for me, it was actually pretty easy and... Uh, I didn't, you know, I didn't really have a plan about what I was going to do next, but I just knew that the current situation was 
intolerable enough that nothing could be, um, you know, nothing could be worse than the situation I was in. I mean, again, that's that's a bit of an exaggeration to say that nothing could be worse because, of course, things can always be worse and some people in the world have it a lot worse than I had it and I don't want to, you know, sure. downplay, downplay that. But, um, yeah, it was probably just a desire for something better and a feeling I had to get out. So did you decide that you were sort of like, done with investment banking and that you wanted to travel or at what point did sort of like travel come into the picture as like the next step? Yeah, I think travel was really the, um, it was kind of the, f the figuring stuff out phase, right? So, mm -hmm. okay, I'm not going to be doing corporate work. So let's travel and see what ideas or opportunities that brings up, what sort of people I might meet, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's something I hadn't really done before as well. So I had, um, I'd never taken a big university exchange or um, a long trip while working, or I'd never took a gap year, for example. So I thought like, hey, now's a good time to do it. Um, got some savings so I can make those last and uh, have some fun at the same time while I figure out what the next step is. And so... At this point, you hadn't even thought about like working remotely or starting a location-dependent business or anything like that. It was just let's hit the road and see what happens. I'd, uh, you know, I'd, I'd met people who had started location-independent businesses, and the the idea was sort of fermenting in my mind. But I I really had no idea how to get started or, you know, what what books I should read or how to go about it. I think I'd I think I'd made a website before, but that was about the extent of my um, experience at the time. So, yeah, I think that a lot of people that are listening might be at that place where they're sort of like, you know, they haven't really started anything or they didn't really know what the next steps were, um, to get kind of going. So what were your next steps? I mean, you know, you're traveling, like at what point did you start taking steps towards actually starting a business? And like, what were those steps? The, uh, the first step I took was, um, was when I was uh, moved away, well, when I moved away from Southeast Asia and I'd moved to Europe, which is a bit more expensive, and I realized that, that money was gonna, um, you know, run out eventually if I, if I lived in Europe instead of Southeast so you Asia. So traveled, you traveled around Southeast Asia for, for how long did you travel around Southeast Asia? For like six months. Okay, so, so, so you were traveling around Southeast Asia for six months and then decided to move over to Europe and realize that you know, the amount of money you had wasn't going to cut it. Yeah, no, I need, needed to just supplement the income somehow. So uh, the question became how to best do that. And um, yeah, what steps did I take? I mean, it's, I think a lot of people sort of look back on their first steps with sort of a, a degree of, uh, you know, maybe, maybe cringe or a bit of, um, <laughs> Like, wow, I, I really knew nothing at the time. Sure. But at the same time, it was, it was a very exciting time because, you know, everything was new and I didn't really know what I didn't know. So I tried a lot of stuff, which, you know, maybe with a bit more experience, I wouldn't have tried. But um, what were some of those things that you, you tried? can actually make a lot of? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I made a website in Weebly, for example, like this is a very, very basic website builder. And, you know, if, if I think you can actually see this website on the Wayback Machine uh, which is a website which which shows like old versions of websites and it had like a picture of my face in very basic copy um and yeah like not, not nothing that i'd be proud of now but 
hey, it, it got me started. And I was actually able to start making money in fairly short order, like surprisingly, even even to myself. Like within um, four or five weeks, I was already like generating cash. And I can talk about how I did that. Yeah. What, um, what were you doing to generate cash so quickly? Yeah. So again, I didn't know anything about search engine optimization or starting an Amazon store or, you know, some of the other common um, online money-making things. So what I did actually was I was offering myself uh, as a freelancer to create um, pitch decks for crowdfunding campaigns. So the niche that I discovered was that this thing called equity crowdfunding was starting up at about the time that I you know, started my attempt to make money online. So equity crowdfunding, just very briefly, is like Kickstarter and Indiegogo, but instead mm-hmm. of sort of pre-funding a product, you're actually getting a share of ownership in the company itself. So it was a pretty good match, actually, for the sort of skills that I'd built up in investment banking. So with investment banking, we were helping initial public offerings um, market themselves to the public. And um, equity crowdfunding is very similar, actually. You're making a, a uh, pitch to the public to raise funds usually for an even earlier stage business. So, you know, the position I found myself in was um, the actual investment banks, like the types of companies that I worked for, were not interested in helping these kinds of clients because they were too small, they couldn't pay enough. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, backpacking around Europe, the money was was quite okay. So just with lower overheads and, and charging less, I guess, I was able to um, yeah, get some of those clients on board and, and help them out. And how were you able to find those clients? So I actually contacted the crowdfunding platforms. Um, oh, like Kickstarter and Indiegogo and stuff. Yeah, but not Kickstarter and Indiegogo. So the the equivalent <laughs> the equivalent to Kickstarter and Indiegogo, oh, okay. but for equity crowdfunding. Um, yeah, so they basically had lots of entrepreneurs coming to them, wanting to raise money, and they, as the platforms, wanted to be like a. They want it to be like an Airbnb, right? They want to connect a buyer and a seller and take a commission. They're not really so interested in, in doing the, you know, the work of getting that company ready to list. So a bit like how there's a whole industry now on Airbnb where there's professional Airbnb photographers who, you know, make your listing optimal and all of that. I was basically doing that, but for the startups and growing companies that were listing on, on the equity crowdfunding campaigns. Mm, so they would like the actual companies would almost connect you with possible clients. Were there other people doing that along with you or were you kind of like just the guy that was doing that? Yeah, I was doing everything. It wasn't a it wasn't like a systematized business. It was just me, you know, making cash and frankly being kind of amazed that the whole thing actually worked, that I'd I'd found a way to make money while, you know, sitting in a in a cafe um, on the other side of the world and you know you have these little moments where you're talking with a client and it's 6 a.m you are still in bed in your underwear and they don't even know it right like they, they're probably picturing some guy behind a desk in a suit or you know talk, talking really official stuff and you know the reality was very different to that so I had a couple of giggles along the way so that was that was quite fun and how long did you like how long did you do this for and do you mind sharing like what? a sort of like a month, like kind of like what you'd be making every month from doing that? Yeah, I'm happy to. Uh, I did that for about 18 months and 
you know, the one one of the problems with this business, and we can you know we can talk about why I stopped in the end. But one of the problems is that the the work was very lumpy. So, what do you mean by that? So in one month I'd have a lot of clients, and another month I'd have nothing at all, and it makes it tough to scale and systematize the, it as a business when, right, like one month you would have way too much work, and one month you'd have not enough work at all. So you can't really get an employee on board to like to do the actual fulfillment. Um, so look, I'd it, it got me my start. It it it's uh, had its own problems. I mean, in terms of being able to scale, but it was still very exciting and, and taught me a lot about you know, how to make a website and how to kind of pitch yourself, um, all the sort of skills which you never really pick up in the corporate world. I, it, it gave me my start. So, And I mean, I know that you were saying that one month it'd be super high and then like the other month it might not be there at all. But if somebody's listening to this and this sounds like exactly like what they want to do, what could they expect as like a, a monthly revenue sort of? Yeah. Um, so on average, it might average out to be three or four thousand mm-hmm. uh, dollars, and then you'd have months where you'd make nothing, and there'd be months where you'd make ten thousand dollars, but you'd be super busy. Right. Uh, so, especially with this being your first sort of like your entry into this whole world, that's not bad. Like a lot of people work years and years to get to that level. Um, so you know that's like a very doable, I think, income for a lot of people. Um, so was it that lumpiness that you described? Was that why you decided to sort of pursue something else? And was the next thing that you tried the Amazon publishing or were there some other things in between there? So the Amazon publishing was sort of what led me to give up the client work because Mm. the book that I published first in 2016, uh, was all about equity crowdfunding. Mm. So... The idea of this book was to try and make the client flow less lumpy. The idea being put a book on Amazon um, and then people will read the book and if they want extra help, then they would contact me to get that help. So you didn't start out thinking like, I'm going to be an Amazon book publisher. You just created a book for the service that you were offering with the hopes of a kind of like streamlining clients? Right. Yeah. Wow. And so what was it about that book writing that made you then want to kind of continue with that? So I discovered some things about Amazon publishing and the business that I was on uh, through this whole process that were interesting. So it's kind of it's kind of like this often repeated thing that like publish a book, you'll be an authority, lots of clients will come to you. And, you know, I didn't find that to be the case at all. You know? <laughs> it didn't work out that way? <laughs> it didn't work out that way. No, no. And and it's it's funny because the kinds of people who say this are often offering author services. Like I, I personally don't know anyone, and I know a lot of self-published Amazon authors. I don't know anyone who says, wow, I published this book and now I've got clients knocking down the door to speak with me. And And what I learned is that I think that a book is more of a conversion tool than a traffic tool. I mean, yes, you will get some people who hear of you through through the Amazon platform who buy your book and read your book, but it's much more useful as as a conversion tool, which means, okay, when you send a cold email to someone and they see that you are the author of the book, um, they'll be more happy to feature you on their podcast or feature you as a guest blog. Um, but you still have to do that initial outreach yourself, which is 
which was actually kind of the part that I wasn't wanting to keep doing right yeah so 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 the part of the work that I didn't enjoy was the sales calls and the prospecting and um I think for those listening who are, who are considering doing a book um then having a book doesn't remove that need you still need to do all of that but was there, what was very interesting to me about the book was was the fact that Amazon just kept on sending me money every month so I enjoyed writing the book. I, I found it very interesting to just get deeply into an idea and immerse myself into it. I loved the launch process. And, and kind of interestingly, given that I was helping other creators launch their crowdfunding efforts, I, I found a lot of parallels actually between the book launch and the crowdfunding launch. So uh, it, was, it was more fun for me to do this myself than to help clients do it for for themselves so yeah i i just i decided that this business wasn't scalable because of the lumpiness in the pipeline mm-hmm. um because of the fact also that it was very difficult to hire people at a decent rate and still have enough margin for myself like i basically would have had to hire another another you mm-hmm. yeah another me right and I, I couldn't sort of farm this out to the philippines for five dollars an hour there's no way right to right. do to do this kind of work um, people charge $100 an hour for this kind of work if you want someone experienced in it who can deal with clients and then produce the output that people are looking for. So, yeah, you can't charge $100 an hour and still have margin for me. I mean, even I didn't charge $100 an hour, so when I started looking for people to outsource this work to, I was like, well, I'd, be, I'd be making a loss if I was outsourcing it. So what sort of money started coming in from this book that, you know, sort of made you like raise your eyebrow and think, okay, there must be something here. Yeah. So this number might not sound impressive, but if you if you stay with me, I think it's it's worth thinking about a little bit because sure. it was uh, it was like three or four hundred dollars a month started coming through. So that's not bad, and that's like passive. Not, you know, you've done it and it's kind of running uh, by yeah. itself at some point, right? Right. It's, it's never completely passive. Like you're always. Sure tweaking ads and you know doing a bit of promotion for it mm-hmm. and, and that sort of thing but yeah it's it's a lot more passive than working with a client and having to you know deliver on something and make sure they're happy with it and um it's just work that i preferred doing and i the, the sort of thought pattern i had was okay if i could have 10 of these books 20 of these books and that kind of income was consistent then like you're really you're building an asset you're building something mm-hmm. that's going to keep paying you for the rest of your life and you know might, maybe even uh if i'm ever fortunate enough to have children would continue paying them for the rest of their life right? it's like it's like building a house where you're not just getting paid to build the house but you actually have a house at the end and you can rent it out and, and keep earning from it so sure so and what is the name of the book by the way we haven't mentioned it yet it's called equity crowdfunding the complete guide for startups and growing companies and people can still go and find this on Amazon and uh, pick it up? They sure can. So, okay, so you you wrote this book and you launched it on Amazon. How did you, by the way, like did you just write it and then put it up on Amazon or did you have some sort of like a launch process to market I, I, it? For sure I had a launch. Okay. And uh, what, what did that launch look like? So... Um, I did a podcast tour, so I did a lot of outreach to podcasts in the uh, startup and crowdfunding space. 
I think I reached out to a hundred podcasts. I don't wow. know, I did all I did all this on my own. So a hundred podcasts, something like twenty or twenty five of them actually had me on, uh, which was which was amazing. So I, I learned a bit about right how to pitch an idea so that it's attractive to a podcast host and so it's attractive to their audience. Um, I did some guest articles. I think one of one of the one of the smartest things I did, I think, was was involving others by interviewing them for content for the book. So mm. so I had I had twenty startups that I interviewed who had done equity crowdfunding and I got their take on the tactics that worked for them, what didn't work. And I also interviewed the the platforms, which are the Kickstarter Indiegogo equivalents, but for equity crowdfunding. And like through through that um, they, some of them were willing to share it with their network. Like when I did the launch, so there was a thing at the time called Thunderclap, which is actually gone now. But but Thunderclap, it's basically an automatic uh, social media sharing thing, and you can set up, you could set, you could set up lots of people to uh, share it on Facebook all at the same time. So you get to like twenty people to share it at the same time, and then it appears on everyone's newsfeed. Yeah, I remember that for a while. That reminds me of. I don't know if you've like ever seen The Office, but I think they had like something they called like the Wolf or something like that, where they would like send it out and it'll go through like fax and text and like email and all this kind of stuff. So that's I, I definitely remember that. That's funny. So you use that to sort of like launch the book and to kind of like get a whole ton of press about it all at sort of like the same time. Yeah, yeah. So the the thing with Amazon is that you can think of it as a bit like a search engine. In uh, that, the goal for the long term is to have the book rank number one, or at least on the first page for a popular search term. Mm-hmm. Right? With Google, if you achieve that, then you'll get lots of traffic to your site. If you uh, do that on Amazon, then you'll get lots of book sales. Um, so, so the question is, how do you get it to number one so that it's got a chance to stay there? Like, ultimately, it's gonna it's gonna stay there based on Amazon's own internal tracking of how many people click on the book and then go on to buy the book. But if you never get there in the first place, then it doesn't even have a chance. Like it'll just be buried on page a hundred. So yeah, you need reviews, you need uh, initial sales and then it'll be ranked number one. And if it's a good book, then it'll stay there. So in speaking with other people who do similar things to you, I know that one of the things that they look at as very important is sort of like the topic and, and the niche that they're covering with that book, right? Is that something that you thought about when you were writing this first book or did you just happen to hit a niche that like could support sort of like a healthy revenue? And is that something that you look at now? So at the time it was accidental because I didn't really understand how Amazon worked the first time around. And I think this is true of the first time you do almost anything. You, you learn the most by um, starting your first website and you know you're not really going to know what you're doing at first and like sort of accidentally I found that that this um, system of targeting a keyword with traffic would work and and I was like why is it working even though I've I'm not doing any more podcast outreach it's still selling why is that so Mm -hmm. I figured it's it's Amazon's own internal traffic so yeah, now I do do that. Now I do deliberately seek out niches who've got traffic, and um, there's a whole 
you know, there's a whole process around that, which I'm happy to go into. Um, but the, uh, yeah, the key is to look at sort of search volume and how popular the other books are, and then to look at those other books. Are they something that you think you can do better, like with a better cover, with a better content, um, with more reviews? So yeah, very, very similar to the ranking on Google. You just, you're looking for, uh, for niches where you have got decent traffic, but you can also beat the competition. Mm-hmm. Just because we don't have, you know, obviously this isn't something that we can cover in like, you know, a, a short podcast episode, but are there any resources that you can suggest people who, you know, as we're talking about this, this sounds interesting to them. Do you have any resources that you can point people towards where they can learn more about these systems and, you know, how they can do this themselves? Just off the top of your head. Uh, yeah, so... Derek Murphy's blog is very good. Uh, he's um, at creativeindie.com, so he's a, mm-hmm. an expert in the self-publishing space. He, he talks about it for fiction writers too. So if, if nonfiction's not your thing and you want to write a vampire romance novel or a you know a gay reverse harem novel, then you can go ahead and do that. And you know, people, you laugh, but people are making fortunes doing this. So oh, I'm, so I'm sure they are. You know, the riches are in the niches. Yeah. Um, so after you wrote this first book and you kind of decided like, hey, I think this is what I kind of want to transition into, um, what did you do next and did you keep the client work while you kind of started writing another book or just kind of like what did your next step look like? So the next step was to move to Georgia. So the, the idea was that this is a, an expensive country which, uh, which I can like live on for very cheaply while I produce more books. So, um, yeah, I, I sort of dialed back the travel, got myself into a more uh, reliable environment. And, uh, yeah, again, it's sort of funny to think of Georgia as being a reliable environment for those who <laughs> haven't been here. But, but, you know, everything here is normal for me now. Like I know how the city works. I know where the supermarket is, all that good stuff. So, um, yeah, it was, it was good for getting work done. And that's what I did for the next uh, little while. And so did you keep the clients that you had initially from like with that investment banking background? Did you keep those clients while you wrote more books or did you just cut them and just start writing books full time? No, I pretty much cut them. And and the thing the thing with this business, like another reason why it's not like an attractive business model, although, although you know, the cash is good for someone getting started. The The other problem with crowdfunding is that there's no recurring revenue element to it. Like people do crowdfunding once or maybe twice, but they don't do it all the time, right? It's not, mm. it's not like an ongoing thing where you can get a client and be like, okay, this is my client and I can rely on that client month after month. So your cost of, cost of customer acquisition is very high. And it's also quite hard to find those customers if they're not being given to you by the crowdfunding platforms. So, um, yeah, I decided that, look, I'm just going to go all in on this Amazon self-publishing thing. It's it's what I want to do. So uh, that's what I did next. And so what was the second book that you wrote? And uh, what did you change from, like, what did you change in your process from the from writing the first book? So uh, the next book I wrote is um, pretty random, but it's called Chess Opening Names. So Chess uh, Opening Names. Yeah, and this this book taught me a lesson as well, and I'll, I'll get to what that lesson was at the end. But it's um, again a pretty niche subject, but but chess players love this book 
And the, the reason is that it doesn't teach them how to play better chess, which is what every other book does. Mm. Uh, but instead it teaches them some interesting history related to the first moves of chess. Um, so I don't know how much overlap there is in your audience between chess players, but I'm sure there'll be some people out there who know that, you know, there's there's the French defence, there's the Sicilian opening, there's the Ninzevich defence. Um, and I'd always wondered, and I guess that other chess players had also wondered too, why do they have these names? So I took a few months and I did the research and I figured out why all these names have the names that they do. Um, and, uh, yeah, the result is a, a very fun, entertaining book, which is a bit different from other chess titles. And, um, yeah, still continues to sell very well. And so, so you wrote this book in a couple of months, and then you and then you put it up on Amazon. And did you try to do the same thing, where you sort of like, um, like tried to build up a whole ton of interest in the book in the beginning, or did that change somehow from the first book? Yeah, that changed. So I, f I feel like whenever you go to a marketing conference, there's always lots of ideas thrown at you about what more you can do, mm -hmm. and and what I wanted to try is how can I, how can I do less? Like what are, what are the really big levers here that um, like if I cut out doing the whole podcast tour, that's a massive saving in time. Mm -hmm. um, but it, but it, but it also, if it doesn't matter so much to be on a chess podcast to sell books on an ongoing basis, um, then, then is that fine? And I found that it, I found that it was actually, I found that actually um, what, is really important is picking the niche, getting the cover right, getting the description right, getting the reviews so that it has a chance of getting to number one. And, you know, those initial sales weren't as important. This, the things that I still did, though, is I still got early testimonials and social proof for the book. Um, so I, I sent out advanced copies to a lot of people uh, and got their, uh, their sort of sentence of recommendation, which I think helps with conversion mm. um, when, you put, when you put that on the sales page. Uh, yeah, so I'd, I think I probably did less overall for that second launch, but um, but it still goes very well. So now that you've done sort of two books, like how long ago did you start? How long ago was that transition into being sort of like a full time author? Uh, so I've done three books in total now, and okay. uh, the the second book is. Um, the chess one. The third book is about cryptocurrency, and there's a lesson in that one too. But uh, the um, the transition. I mean, I I put out the second book about eight months after the first one, so so I was taking some time off after the first one because it's always a big effort to launch one of these things. Um, and then I got into the research, and uh, yeah, there's some time in writing, but there's also some time in getting all the other stuff right, like the cover design, the the sales copy. Um, so that all took its time too. So yeah, how long on average does it take you to write a book? I mean, I know that you said that you took some time and there is time for research. Like that time that you're actively working on a new book, about how long does it take you to, to produce a title? It takes me about three or four months, which okay. is uh, a lot longer than it takes some self-published authors. Um, but there's a whole philosophy around producing quickly versus producing quality, which, uh, you know, I sort of try to come down on the side of let's make something that's going to last and be really proud of. Um, but the ones who make a lot more money are, are also just producing really rapidly. So, uh, 
yeah, it's a, it's a, a tricky decision. Yeah, I know I've heard like people like hire other people to like write the books and they'll like outsource like 10, 20 books at a time. What is like your, like, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, it can definitely work. It all depends mm-hmm. on, on what you want to achieve. I, I think though that someone being paid a fixed amount for a book is never going to do as good of a job. Right. They're not going to care as much. Mm-hmm. They're they're not really invested in the craft and putting their own name on it, so they're interested in getting the project done, so they can move on to the next thing. Uh, from from the entrepreneur's point of view, that's definitely the smart move, and to you know create a bunch of pen names and and to do all of that. Uh, but it also comes down to how you want to spend your time. Mm. So. If you're hiring a bunch of writers and outsourcing the work, then you're a manager and you're not a writer. And for me, it's important that I, I really put my best creative effort into writing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that decision has, has a financial trade-off. But, again, I get to spend time doing what I, what I love to do. So I sort of make that uh, trade-off with eyes open. Sure. So you said, you know, your second book was a chess book. Your third book was on cryptocurrencies. Um, is there somewhere where people can go to find all of those books, by the way? Like, do you have like a website that kind of like um, where people can like find all three books from? Yep. Um, so if you maybe we can post a link in the yeah, absolutely. comments. Yeah, yeah sure. I can I can provide that there. Okay, perfect. So, so if anybody wants to check out those books, um, head over to the show notes for this episode and you can get those. Um, so that way it will be easier. Um, I know that you are working on a new book now, which is covering sort of like the digital nomad lifestyle and space. Can you tell us a little bit about that book? Yeah. So the title of that one is going to be Citizens of the World. And this is a little different from other digital nomad books. I feel like the space is quite crowded with the the how to become a digital nomad guides. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, there's, and, and, you know, arguably no one's done it better than the original uh, Tim Ferriss for our work week, which is still, you know, even to this day, inspiring people to quit their jobs and, you know, try and make money online, even if a lot of the tools in the book have changed. Uh, anyway, anyway, so the idea of citizens of the world is to kind of peel back the curtain on what's going on with this location independence movement. Mm. And I think there's a lot of really fascinating stories which people who are not yet part of this world would be kind of interested in a, in a way to find out about. So like even if they're not interested in becoming a digital nomad themselves, they might be quite interested to know some of the some of the goings on that Amazon sellers are dealing with or Google is dealing with or some of the challenges that come with this lifestyle and, and how, you know, through hacking the system, as you know, many digital nomads like to do, they, they might be a force for changing the system, bringing about more globalization, you know, breaking down borders. And, uh, yeah, I want it to be a, like a commentary showing people uh, what's really behind the curtain. Can you give us an example of possibly one of those stories so that, um, you know, people listening can see if this is something they'd like to check out? Sure, sure. So so imagine someone who's built themselves a, a thriving uh, business based on Google traffic. And then along comes Google with an algorithm update. And boom, they're, they're back to zero, right? So the stability is gone. Uh, 
or another story which is reoccurring is the, the frustrations that come with sort of living in a system which doesn't yet support the lifestyle that people are already living in. So you've got to, you've got to do visa runs, which are like, let's face it, they're, they're pointless because you just go to the airport, you get a stamp, you turn around, you come back again. Like it's not actually, uh, it's a waste of everybody's time, basically. Right. right? Can you describe right. what a visa run is for people who don't know what it is? A visa run is when you are living in a country as a digital nomad and like let's say in Thailand, you get one month upon arrival. So after that month, if you want to stay in Thailand, one way to do that is to cross the border into Myanmar or any other country. Uh, and then as soon as you've crossed into Myanmar, you go back to immigration, come back into Thailand and you get another month. So right, if the point of if the point of the rule is to only limit people to one month, then it's not achieving that. Um, because people are just wasting their time spending a day going to Myanmar and back. Um, so it's right. kind of ridiculous. And, and, you know, other ways that people get around these rules, like they'll sign up to a, a Thai kickboxing school or a Thai language school, and they'll never actually attend a class. And the schools know this too. Like they're entirely set up just to help young Western digital nomads to beat the system basically. So, Wait, so I didn't know this. Can you get like an extension on your visa if you sign up for one of those schools? Is that what the idea is? You get a different class of visa. You get an education visa, oh. which lets you stay for, well, I might be wrong here, but I think you get to stay for 12 months if you get if you get signed up to a Thai language class. So, the, so you know, the, the, the people turn up to the school twice a year, once to sign up for it and once to get the kind of the class photo that proved that they were attending that they school. were there <laughs> they don't learn any thai um they don't right they don't they don't learn any thai or actually do what the piece of paper says that they were going to do but it sort of gets around the rule so i think there's lots of stories of this where people are effectively getting around the rules mm. and uh yeah people will be interested in this some people will be against it some people will be for it but i think uh, lots of people will be interested in it and when is, uh, for people who are now, their curiosity is peaked, when does the new book come out? Yeah, I wish I had a launch date. <laughs> it'll, be, <laughs> it'll, be, it'll be next year sometime. Okay, um, so... I've, I've, I've got an email list that people can sign up to, citizensoftheworld.io. Okay, so if anybody's interested in that book, head on over to citizensoftheworld.io, uh, and you have an email list there, so that's, okay, awesome. So now that we're wrapping up a little bit, if somebody's listening to this and this sounds like something that they want to do can you give us kind of like you know it doesn't have to be exact numbers but about how much money like do you make per book per month so that people can kind of like do the math in their head for like how many books that I have to write or just kind of like come up with a math in their head on, on how much work they need to do to get what they need to live yeah, I mean, I get this, asked this question a lot, and I'll I will do my best to answer it. But I will preface it beforehand by saying, like, the amount of money a book can make is a bit like asking how many views a YouTube video can get. Sure. I mean, there's a huge range, right? So, uh, you know, an average level of success, I I think, for someone who's doing their first book might be two or three hundred bucks a month if you pick a good niche and create a quality title and create a quality cover and put some effort into writing it. Um, of course, it could be zero if you don't do mm -hmm. those things. So, uh, 
yeah, there's there's that math. So yeah, if you take a few months to write it, you're making two or three hundred bucks a month per book. And if you're faster than I am, then you could get four or five of those books done a year. You know, you could be making a healthy amount to live in an inexpensive country like Georgia or Thailand within a year. So, mm -hmm. you know, there's, there's the whole rule where you should probably start this lifestyle for those who are just thinking of getting started. You should probably have some money in reserve so that you can, you know, uh, have a bit so that you don't have to make it work straight away. And I think books are a bit of a long-term game, unlike the services thing where I did at first. So the advantage of services is you can make money immediately. But if you've got a bit more runway, then, yeah, books, I would say it probably takes a year or two to figure it out and get enough that you can live comfortably. Yeah, I think that's true for, like, I think all services. I mean, like, if you have a skill that is valuable, like, you could turn around tomorrow and technically, you know, sell it online and, and, and gain your quote-unquote location-independent wings, you know. But if you're trying to do something that is, and I, I, I kind of don't agree with the word passive because there's nothing that's fully passive in life, but um, if you do want to go down that route, it usually means, you know, you got to trade in time now for hopefully, like, a reward later on. So, um, yeah, I, I, I totally agree with that. Um, now, one other comment, and this is going to be like my last question for you. Um, one other thing that I've heard about sort of the publishing world is that it's getting extremely competitive and it can be really, really difficult to actually like kind of like dig out your own little spot in that in, in that um, industry. What do you think about that? Do you feel like there's still enough uh, opportunity for, for new writers? Yeah, I think there is. But it, what, what I think is happening is that the really low-quality stuff is um, not as easy as it used to be. So it used to be that you could pick a keyword, put up like literally anything, and because you were targeting a keyword and no one else was, then your thing would appear number one. So Amazon's getting a bit smarter. Like they're, they're doing things like checking whether the reviews are genuine from real people who've bought your book. They're, they're doing more in terms of um, favoring books which are a bit longer rather than books which are really short. So, you know, it's, it's, it's hard if you don't want to put the effort in, but I also think that a lot of authors don't understand um, some of the things which I now consider basic, but I guess it's not so basic, but, 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 but you know, basic marketing principles like having a good cover so that people will click on the book um, having good sales copy so that once they do click on the book, they're excited to buy it. Um, having calls to action within the book so that you can capture the email address and you know build a continual relationship with the reader. Like these sorts of things are not things that most authors are doing, and therefore for those who do do them, um, there's still an opportunity there, I believe. Yeah, so maybe if you're coming into this with some digital marketing experience or understanding, you might have kind of like a leg up on the competition, essentially. Yeah, I mean, and I think that's definitely an edge that I have in the chess book in particular, right? So the average guy who writes a chess book, you know, the grandmaster who's played chess his whole life, you know, doesn't understand the first thing about cover design. And, you know, I, I am definitely no expert when it comes to cover design, but I can also do a lot better than you know the 80 year old russian grandmaster who's just puts a little picture of a king on his book which is no different from the other books so yeah you, you can 
this is all about picking the niche too, right? This is, can you beat the competition? And uh, the chess book is a good example of a niche where the competition uh, isn't so sophisticated. And for a creator, that's a good thing. Sure. Well, Nathan, thank you so much for uh, being on the show. I really appreciate it. Once again, if there is anybody who wants to get in touch with you to find out more or pick up one of your books, uh, where is the best place where they can find you? So they can sign up for updates about the new book at citizensoftheworld.io. If you want to buy the books, the best place to go is just to Amazon and then search for my name. That's Nathan Rose. And uh, if you want to email me for any reason, like if anything about what I've said is interesting, then yeah, shoot me an email contact at nathanrose.me. Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Um, I had a ton of fun. Uh, And yeah, well, maybe uh, sometime uh, we're going to meet up somewhere around the road and share some beers, right? That'd be great.